conflicting data swimming around in media and, and I think people are, are confused and a little bit daunted by it all. So um, that's one of the reasons we we have a business and people people need services like ours to try and make sense of it. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Terry Ryder, creator of Hotspotting which analyzes property markets to identify areas where property is about to boom. He shares the story of how he came to Australia for a year in the 70s to play rugby and how he landed in property writing to become Australia's hotspotting property hero. Terry Ryder spends his day scouring for information and crunching numbers, keeping an eye on property markets all around Australia. I'm the managing director and founder of hotspotting.com.au which is a website which was set up in uh, 2006 to essentially to advise uh, property buyers the best places to buy uh, around Australia, taking a, a medium to long term view, um, looking for the characteristics of the future hotspots and alerting people to them before they become hotspots because uh, I think that's, that's the essential thing that um, property investors are looking for. They want to know about the places that are going to rise before they rise. A large part of uh, the day for myself and my, my team is involved in gathering information. We're uh, scanning all kinds of uh, sources via the internet and, and in other ways, trying to pull on as much information as we can about uh, what's going on in economies and property markets around Australia. We fundamentally, fundamentally believe that uh, real estate markets arise out of the local economy, not so much about national uh, economic factors like interest rates or you know the Banking Royal Commission. Um, it's essentially about what's happening in local economies. So we're looking for uh, growth drivers, looking for events that alert us to potential future hotspots. So we're searching through newspapers around the country, uh, Google alerts, all sorts of sources trying to uh, pick up on um, hints and indicators of areas that um, are going to go ahead or are going ahead as um, potential hotspots. So that's a large part of what we do. Uh, We're putting together reports uh, for both uh, mum and dad investors, but also we have B2B services, so uh, businesses that are involved in the real estate space often looking for uh, custom-built reports on the areas that they're interested in. Um, so the team's also putting together those those kinds of reports. I also spend a lot of time talking to media because media's always hungry for information about what's going on in markets around Australia. So I spend quite a bit of time talking to television, radio and uh, newspaper journalists. Ryder recognises there's so much information available, which is a problem that many real estate consumers have. That's why we have a business. That's why we provide the service we do, essentially. Um, there's, there's, there's too much stuff out there for people to to gather, even if they knew where to go to find it. Um, gathering it all together takes a lot of time and then making sense of it. That's the hard part. Um, and so we just have a system where um, various members of the team have certain areas that they're uh, searching for information, and that's all 
fed through to me and um, every day I'm um, sending that information off in various directions electronically. We, we file with uh, an electronic filing system um, under various category headings. Um, hundreds of different locations around Australia have their, their electronic file and um, while I'm doing that process, it's alerting me to um, indicators of areas we maybe need to delve a little bit deeper into. Um, and a new piece of infrastructure announced, for example, um, some um, something that's come through the information channels we tap into telling us that uh, a market may be potentially rising. So we'll, we'll look a, bit, a little bit deeper into that, um, maybe talk to some local um, real estate professionals on the ground, uh, valuers and buyers agents, etc., and um, and that all feeds into the process whereby we create reports. Essentially, that's what we're doing. We're creating reports on locations. Um, Mum and dad investors um, have a need for that, um, and businesses that are in the real estate space also do. Um, once a, a month, I do a, a live Facebook Q&A where I invite people to throw their questions at me via Facebook, and I answer the questions live via that medium. And... 90 or 95% of the questions I get are about location. That's essentially what people are interested in. They want to know, what do you think of this suburb? What do you think of this town? Um, I've, I've got a property here. Should I keep it? Should I sell it? Uh, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really um, people are very location-driven when it comes to real estate investment. He was born and bred on the South Island of New Zealand and came to Australia in 1978 for a year-long working holiday. Over 40 years later, he's still here. I actually came to Australia to play uh, for a rugby union club um, who uh, were shorter players and Port Hay New Zealanders have a pretty good rugby player. So um, I, was at the, I, I started out as a, a newspaper journalist and I was working in a newspaper in Wellington, the capital of New Zealand, uh, and wrote an article about a guy from a rugby club in Ipswich um, in the Brisbane metropolitan area recruiting rugby players and anyway I decided to become part of that as a working holiday adventure but having arrived in Australia um, one thing led to another and I never left so um, and I was a I was a general um, news reporter at the Courier Mail in Brisbane in the early 80s when the editor called me in one day and told me that he's decided to make me property editor and I protested uh, because I didn't know anything about real estate. And he said, uh, you'll find out. It's about houses and stuff, which is something about the way newspapers were run then and still are, I'm afraid. Um, anyway, I, I was appointed property editor and decided, well, if I've got to do it, I'm going to do it well, and decided to um, to do a lot of research. Um, not, there wasn't much research available in those days, so I created my own research exercise and... Um, decided to make it, it uh, a specialty and it just evolved from there from the Courier Mail to the Australian Financial Review and then uh, became a, a freelance consultant and the other things have evolved from that. So I became a property expert quite by accident, um, just a bit of a twist of fate that, that comes along in people's lives. You know what they say, life's what happened while you're busy making other plans. I never never planned to be a, a real estate specialist but um, that um, meeting in the office of the editor of the Courier Mail way back about 1982 was kind of fateful in those those terms. It sort of dictated the future. 
Did you actually study in journalism when you actually were over in um, New Zealand before actually moving across? My first job was in a bank and I very quickly realised that wasn't for me. Um, but accidentally, it made me realise that um, I wanted to do something in the writing space um, because I, I, I failed to show up for a staff meeting at the bank one day and they appointed me branch correspondent to the National Magazine. So I decided if I was going to write reports for this magazine, I was going to have some fun with it. So I satirised everything happening in the bank. And uh, I noticed that um, uh, people who worked in the bank absolutely loved it. And I really enjoyed the fact that they enjoyed what I wrote. So I decided I wanted to become a writer. So I went to journalism school and then started to work in newspapers. And that uh, led me to working um, in the sports department of the uh, major newspaper in Wellington and my encounter with the the man from the rugby club in um, in Ipswich on the, the fringe of Brisbane and that um, led on to everything else. So it's amazing amazing how step by step um, little slices of fate lead, lead you to where you end up. Ryder has published four books so far with the last being released in 2004. The novelty wore off I guess. So much work goes into them. Uh, I am planning to, to return to publishing books on real estate topics and other things. Um, the ones I have published were very much orientated towards uh, the consumer protection side of real estate, alerting to pe- people to the the perils and pitfalls and um, some of the, the shonkier elements of real estate they needed to be aware of. Um, Buyer Beware was one title. I also wrote a book called Real Estate Without Agents, um, uh, which was designed to show people that they could actually sell property themselves without needing to to pay real estate agent commission. So I've published four books of that nature um, and plan to go back um, very soon. Um, part of this year's plan is actually to uh, get another book written on real estate topics. So um, that's something I love doing. It's just uh, very time-consuming. And uh, running a business um, and writing books aren't necessarily compatible time-wise. With so much writing experience under his belt, Ryder says the biggest change he's seen over the years is in the research area. When I was property editor of the Courier Mail in the early 80s and then at the Financial Review in the mid-80s, there was really no source you could go to for real estate information. There were, there were no um, domains or core logics. Um, Realestate.com.au didn't exist. Um, and so I decided that I was going to do my own research. So I created a research exercise myself. I used to work very long hours because I just became fascinated by it. I didn't just want to um, recycle press releases or just report what people were saying in the industry. I wanted to know what was going on. Um, so I started um, researching uh, what was selling, how much it was selling for um, in, in the commercial space as well as residential um, who owned the big buildings, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that became the basis of everything I did and also became the basis of my consultancy when I evolved out of um, newspapers into becoming um, a consultant to major uh, property firms. And I used to write research-based reports for them. Um, no one else was doing that at the time. So the big difference now is that... Um, Everything's changed in that regard. There are so many research sources. Obviously, the evolution of the internet and computer computer technology has has revolutionised that. And so now we've got to the point where there's 
as I said earlier, there's too much information out there and it becomes mind-boggling for people, particularly as, um, to a certain degree, all the information about residential property is dodgy data or rubbery figures to a certain degree. So you can, we pull in price data from, say, six different sources and they've all got six different numbers for the same market. Some claim the... Um, uh, a particular market is rising and other sources can have figures that indicate it's falling. And so how do people make sense of that? Um, and that's the problem uh, that consumers have. There's all this conflicting data swimming around in media and, and I think people are, are confused and a little bit daunted by it all. So, um, yeah, so that, 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 that's one of the reasons we, we have... Um, we have a business and people people need services like us to try and make sense of it. Information wasn't as readily accessible and available before the internet came along. So, how did he find his data back in the day? It was like um, just setting up an exercise and then talking to people in the industry, each of whom knew something and if you talk to enough people, you, you find out uh, everything you need to know. I mean, I remember there was one phase in Brisbane where um, all the best corner uh, sites in the centre of Brisbane were occupied by traditional old pubs and um, developers were buying them because they, they were prime real estate to build um, sort of office buildings primarily. So I created an exercise finding out uh, where all the, the pubs were located in central Brisbane, who owned them, how you know what size uh, lot size they were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that became a valuable piece of information for the industry because a lot of people were looking for that kind of property to, to buy to redevelop. Um, but it was just a lot of uh, foot slogging and phone calling in those days. And you're almost like a, a private detective except not searching for the person, you're searching for property. Being a, a newspaper journalist in those times and um, it's, certainly the reporting of real estate was very different then to what it is now. Today it's pretty much an exercise of recycling press releases which to me isn't journalism at all. Um, publishing a press release was a sacking offence when I was working as a property editor in the 80s. Uh, so you, you're, you're generating your own articles by going out and talking to people in the industry and finding out what's going on. And the idea was to be the first to know of the major deals that were coming up and you could do that if you talked to enough people. So it was a very good way to learn about research. Research was, was about um, you know foot slogging and talking to us many people as you could to find out what was going on. To a certain degree, that's still the case. The, the resources in newspapers were a lot more than they are now. So you did have, um, to a certain extent, the resources to do things well. Um, but my section at the Courier Mail was a weekly section published on a Friday. So you had the week to get your stories together. If you had something that was really hot, it would go in the general news on the day. But generally speaking, we were working week to week. We were working Monday to Thursday getting together articles and features to be published on Friday. So it was not quite the the, um, the daily deadline pressure that um, people working in other sections of the paper had. So uh, that that was a little bit easier. Um, but, um, yeah, a lot of work. We worked long hours um, to, to try and do it well because um, I've, I've always had this obsession with whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do as well as I can. So I've always been a bit of a workaholic um, in in the area that I'm interested in working in. is isn't a bad quality to have as long as you can keep it under control. 
Ryder has certainly spent a lot of time helping others onto the property ladder, but he didn't hop on himself until later. Initially, I was interested in the subject because I was appointed to do it, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do it as well as I can, but I wasn't that interested in wealth accumulation, so I, um, I was slow to get interested in investing personally, but eventually I did. And um, early on, um, you know, I think anyone you talk to, I'm sure you've had this experience, anyone you've interviewed who's had a long uh, history with real estate investment will tell you of all the mistakes they made early on. I think everybody um, has had that experience. Uh, no one's had a, a clean sailing career as a property investor and the sort of, um, with the wisdom of hindsight, you wish you'd done things differently. Early on, I was buying and selling. Um, now, with, with hindsight, I wouldn't have done that. I would have accumulated, just kept in what I initially had, had owned it and just added to a portfolio, but I didn't understand in the early days the importance of doing that. So I was buying something and after it had grown and go selling it and buying something else um, and did quite well from that, but I would have done a lot better, I think, long term if I'd um, kept everything um, that was good and uh, just accumulated a growing portfolio. Um, but. Um, Early on, I had a philosophy that whatever I bought, it was going to have a view. I decided that um, property with a view had a selling feature, and that seemed to work pretty well for me. Um, but along the way, I just noticed that, that things, even ugly real estate, this is one of the things I, I still believe to be true, is that ugly real estate grows in value often as well as, as pretty real estate. Um, it's, it's all about affordability for a lot of people and, and what it's close to. And it's more important than the actual the look and feel of the property itself. Um, Well-located property close to a train station, for example, that's affordable, close to shopping, close to schools, all those basic uh, things that I started to pick up on early in my property investing career and still, I believe, remain true. Um, I've added that extra element through the hot spotting process where firstly we're looking at really great locations <clears throat> that have an underlying economy that's going to support superior growth but within that then looking for a property that's um, got good proximity to public transport, uh, shopping and schools as the, as the fundamentals to look for. He points to recent research that indicates where people have been looking at property outside of the major cities. They are looking for shiny objects. Um, the vast majority of searches from people in Melbourne and Sydney outside of their own areas were uh, focused on the Gold Coast, for example. The Gold Coast has, does not have a great track record uh, for capital growth, particularly the high-rise market. It's a very poor record. But people um, are lured by those sexy locations. They've got a bit of you know, sizzle. Um, that appear like great places to, to own real estate, but you know they're, they're overlooking the fundamentals. And um, I often contrast the the capital growth record of, say, a surface barrier apartment with a, a three-bedroom house in Dubbo in regional New South Wales. Well, Dubbo's by far the superior investment over time, but a lot of people don't appreciate that. So they're, um, they're not um, understanding the fundamentals of what makes a good um, property purchase. As for his own property journey, Ryder was renting and tired of constantly moving for reasons outside of his control, which gave him the push he needed. It was one year in which I had to relocate uh, six or seven times 
because um, you know, the landlord decided to sell or I'd offended uh, the landlord in some way and he kicked me out and I decided I'm sick of this, I'm going to buy my own place. Um, and it cost $25,000 and it was in a, a very modest suburb uh, in Ipswich in the far southwest of the Brisbane metropolitan area. Um, and at that point I was actually working at the Kirimau, so it was a very long commute. So um, it's interesting that um, um, there's a lot of media today about um, first-home buyers can't afford to buy and they've got to go to the far outreach as well. It was the same situation way back then, uh, more than 30 years ago when I bought my first place. That was the best I could afford. Um, I couldn't afford to buy closer in. And um, so, you know, to get on the um, the property ownership ladder, you've firstly got to be prepared to make sacrifices and compromises. Um, no one gets their, their dream home and their dream location as a first purchase, even back then when things were cheaper. But, you know, incomes were lower as well, so it's all relative. So that cost $25,000, and whenever I drive past it, these days I look at it and think, my God, I can't believe I live there. It's the ugliest piece of real estate you've ever seen. But it, it grew in value. Uh, in a couple of years, it, it, it grew from twenty five to 40000 and I sold it, and my second purchase was a lot closer to the centre of Brisbane. And um, so I kept doing that until maybe on my, my fourth purchase, I was closer to what I regarded as the dream home. And as I say, with, with hindsight, I would have kept those properties um, and um, you know just made them part of a rental portfolio, but um, I didn't understand the wisdom of that back then. In some respects, it was harder back then because the um, the only there weren't the, the borrowing options that exist now. You, the only place you'd get a loan was the, the people you'd banked with for several years and built up a record with. Um, and there were no government grants or stamp duty concessions then. So um, in many respects, it was harder. The mid to late 80s, interest rates were above 10%, and um, Paul Keating kept raising them to try and dampen down the boom, but the boom kept raging, and mortgage rates did get up to 17 18% before the boom stopped in the late 80s, and I experienced that. So, yeah, in all those respects, it was harder back then. So, you know, all relative... Um, I know prices, you know, in the biggest cities are, are pretty high, but um, if people are willing to make sacrifices and compromises, and that's the key thing, they can get their foot on the property ladder. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing people now going down the rent vesting path, which is, is probably a good compromise. Uh, if people decide, well, we do want to live in certain areas of Sydney or Melbourne, we can't afford to buy there, but we... we um, want to live there so we can buy our first property as an investment property and maybe a, a good regional centre that's affordable. And I think that's, uh, that's a great compromise to make. Coming up after the break, Ryder delves into the early days of his career and how instrumental they were to his success today. Going back more than a dozen years when I was planning to create this business, I started out by doing a series of articles for Money Magazine where I, I um, this, each of the series dealt with a different aspect that um, my research showed created hotspots. The regional markets around the country he has his eye on? A lot of the, the rising areas in terms of real estate um, have very strong proactive councils that go out there and actually encourage people to come and live encourage people to come and invest and set up businesses. He lets us in on where he's planning to purchase next 
and it's not where you'd expect. My next purchase um, will be there um, because I really believe in what's happening and it's going to be very exciting. But um, as I say, most people are pack animals, they'll follow the herd when they read that there's a boom happening. And that's up next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, let's be real. Deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand, but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall, allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Coming back, Ryder reveals the property he'd most wishes he kept despite all its shortcomings. My first house actually close to the center of Brisbane and it was quite a, a modest and ugly little place and it cost, I recall, about $50,000 but it was on a great block of land that was elevated with views looking up the Brisbane River to the Gateway Bridge and um, and I sold it for 110000 so I doubled my money uh, in a relatively short space of time. I thought I'd done very well but I noticed last time I drove past it that someone had bought that, knocked it down and built a mansion on that block of land. Um, so imagine what it would be worth today. Um, but probably um, a worst experience but, but a good object lesson um, was come from um, some years ago buying or trying to buy a property in regional New South Wales and for a whole host of different reasons. Every property I tried to buy, it just didn't come off. Someone bought it out from under my nose or the, the vendor changed their mind and decided not to sell after I'd done a lot of work and spent a lot of money on searches and valuations, etc. Um, and it just dragged on for months. And um, But I, I persisted and eventually I, I ended up getting a good property in that location. and. Um, there's a number of lessons out of that and that is it does happen that way sometimes and you have to persist and be patient. Um, and the other lesson was that um, never to be repeated bargains um, happen almost every day. So you think the property that you first target is the only one that's going to fulfill your dreams in that location and you miss out. But um, another one that's even better will pop up if you persist. Um, one of my mentoring clients has actually been through that process just in the last uh, several months, just constant frustration of targeting properties that look great, exactly what we're looking for, and then um, for some reason um, someone beats them to it or they do the building and pest inspection and find it's riddled with termites. Um, it's taken him about four months. He's finally bought a property and it's probably the best that we've looked at in that four-month process. But um, And if he'd given up, and lack patience and persistence, he wouldn't have got there. 
Mm, I totally agree. And that, that is so, so good, that lesson for people to learn because that's where you find the best deals. I know people who start out buying property, they can take anywhere between 6 to 12 months and sometimes they throw in and say, Look, I'm just going to get the next one and that, that is just due to a sense of frustration. But if you have found the deal that works out well and you just give it the time and you wait, it will come. It's just a matter of, of maybe building up the knowledge and patience. And I've just relearned that lesson today, in fact, this morning. Um, I'm looking to buy, I don't mind telling you, in Bendigo, in Victoria, which I think is a, a market with a lot of potential right now and in the future. And um, the property that um, we were targeting has just been sort of snaffled from under our noses by another buyer. Um, and um, I've just applied the same attitude. Um, that, that property was um, ideal for what we were looking for, but... Another one as good or probably better will will pop up um, next week probably, I'm sure. Um, and so I'm, I'm totally unfazed by that. There was a time when I would have been uh, devastated to have missed what appeared to be the perfect uh, answer to my current criteria. But uh, you know, experience um, is a very valuable thing in real estate investment. Moving from the worst investing moments to the best, Ryder shares the moment where everything clicked for him. I think the aha moment was um, understanding that it's not about buying and selling, it's not about trading real estate. I mean, that's actually a very foolish way to go about it. Um, Your selling and buying costs eat up so much of your your capital gain that you've achieved. Um, The aha moment was realizing that it was about um, accumulation of good assets. Um, I think it was might have been something that I read from Warren Buffett. I mean, he's one of the smartest people um, on the planet in terms of investing. He, he invests in share market type investments, not real estate so much, but um, a lot of his philosophy applies equally to real estate. And um, I remember him saying that he applies a strategy whereby it doesn't matter if they they close the share market for the next five years, he's happy because he buys assets um, that have fundamentally long-term in value. He doesn't buy them with a view to selling them. He buys them because they're good assets and he's got, he plans to keep them you know, for the duration. And um, and I think that that's very true in real estate as well. It's um, it's about accumulating good assets and keeping them. And, and more recently, I think the aha moment uh, at some point in the recent past was that um, it's no longer about um, passive investment as um, uh, you might call it, where you, you buy something that's um, rentable and has the potential for capital growth and you wait for it to grow. Uh, increasingly, investors, including myself, are looking for something to accelerate the process. So we're looking for all of that, but also something where you can add value, whether it's through renovation, extension, building a granny flat or subdividing or redeveloping in the future. I think it's about finding property that has the zoning and the land size and the potential to do something extra with um, and what I'm currently looking for is very much fits um, that general category. It's something that's immediately rentable but you can um, subdivide or build a second dwelling or perhaps redevelop with, with townhouses in the future. You know, well, a lot of properties already have the zoning in place, um, already has the what's required to to do extra with it. Um, quite often, the um, the seller doesn't doesn't understand the potential themselves. He 
reflects on his early days in property writing and how that has influenced the characteristics he looks for in the property market now. Going back more than a dozen years when I was planning to create this business, I, I started out by doing a series of articles for Money Magazine where I, I um, just each of the series dealt with a different aspect that um, my research showed created hotspots. It might be um, the the ripple effect. Um, it might have been um, proximity to jobs nodes. I focused on each topic um, individually in a series of articles that were published in Money Magazine. I was doing the research um, not only um, for um, doing some money for, as a freelance writer at the time, but to create the research basis for um, the hotspotting business. And so when our research effort, we're looking for uh, certain characteristics and events and probably the single most important one, if I distill it all down to one word, the word is infrastructure. And um, a good location to buy and will have good existing infrastructure, but more particularly, um, the game changer will be planned new infrastructure. Um, now I'm in the uh, Sunshine Coast hinterland. The Sunshine Coast is a great case study um, five or six years ago, um, we included the Sunshine Coast in our no-go zones report because it was a, a poorly performing market because essentially its economy was about tourism, which is a very fickle um, and volatile industry, um, very, very prone to downturn. And so real estate didn't perform very well. Uh, Noosa hadn't shown any growth for you know most of the last 10 years, for example, despite its iconic reputation. But something fundamentally changed and it was through infrastructure spending as $20 billion were happening in the Sunshine Coast. Um, there's a medical precinct being created that wasn't there before. It's created a whole new industry for the Sunshine Coast and it's brought a lot of new people to live there, many of them very well-paid people, and that's really given put a, a turbo charge on the property market. Um, and they're spending half a million on the airport. They're spending a billion dollars right now on the motorway. There's a new CBD being created in Maroochydore. Um, the biggest shopping centre on the Sunshine Coast is being expanded by $400 million. All these things are happening. Uh, UN Insurance has set up its national headquarters on the Sunshine Coast. That wouldn't have happened five years ago. Um, so those, those are the sort of game-changing things that we're looking for, and it all centres around infrastructure. I mean, I believe that uh, the biggest single factor for Sydney's boom in the last five years until recently was uh, the infrastructure spend. Uh, there's tens and tens of billions of dollars being spent um, on uh, rail links and motorway upgrades and universities and hospitals, and that generates economic activity, it creates jobs, and out of that comes demand for real estate. The wealth it's created or helped to create has made the... You know, the Sydney New South Wales economy uh, fundamentally the strongest economy in Australia and uh, that's generated a property boom and uh, a lot of wealth has come out of that for Sydney. Did they create the demand? Is that how it, it came about? That's why they, they decided, okay, this is going to be good to pull all the infrastructure and spend those billions of dollars to create all those things? Yeah, I think, I think the demand was there. Um, it's, it's the action of government that's been lagging um, so um, the Sunshine Coast region was a growing region because it was, you know, um, in terms of lifestyle, a good place to live. But um, medical services were falling behind and, and there was a need for um, a new hospital. So they built a $2 billion one um, after much lobbying from 
local people. And um, and then once that was established, um, someone decided, well, we're going to build a private hospital next to the, the public hospital, and then specialist medical uh, buildings were built, and so be- suddenly this precinct evolved. So one thing led to another. Um, but um, you know, in the case of Sydney, um, there was a huge need for the infrastructure that they had been building over the last, say, five years, just that the previous government um, was... Um, just not spending anything on infrastructure. It was so um, ridden by internal division and corruption and all sorts of distracting things that um, governance wasn't happening and spending on necessary infrastructure got way behind. And more recently, they've caught up and it's generated um, a strong economy. Uh, It's not the only factor, but it's been a big factor, Um, similar with the Sunshine Coast. And there are other places... um, Geelong's a great example. That that particular economy uh, just outside of Melbourne is is, is absolutely thriving. Um, and it's, a lot of it's been generated by um, infrastructure spending. Um, a feature I think that's underrated, and a lot of people wouldn't even think to look for it, is um, the importance of a um, a proactive local council. A lot of the the rising areas in terms of real estate um, have very strong proactive councils that go out there and actually encourage people to come and live, encourage people to come and invest and set up businesses. The Sunshine Coast definitely has that. Geelong definitely has that. Um, you know, th- These are economies in transition. Wollongong's another one. It used to be a smokestack economy, and now it's more about um, health and education and IT services. Um, Geelong's very similar. It's evolved from the old blue-collar industries uh, to modern industries, and that's... Um, be facilitated by ambitious um, local councils and also state governments to some extent. The processes to discover and provide the right information are long and involved, but well worth the time and effort. It starts with an idea and then it becomes a proposal and then there's some research and there'll be some debate. Um, and eventually it will happen, but it's, a, it's a quite a long, drawn-out process. So um, for a certain extent, we're, we're gathering it all together and, and um, taking a punt sometimes that something will happen. I mean, a game-changer for the Rigcliffe Peninsula in the north of Brisbane was the new rail link. Um, that was promised for 50 years before they actually um, decided to do it and actually deliver it. Um, But one of the interesting things about infrastructure is there's sort of three phases of growth. One one is when they announce it, and then the second is when they actually start building it, and the third and biggest one is when they have finished it and people can touch it and feel it and see the benefits. So you stand the potential to to gain the most as an investor if you buy when the announcement is made, but you're taking the risk that um, the political announcement will be delivered on, because quite often promises aren't kept. Um, probably the safest time to invest is when they actually start building it, because you're pretty sure it's going to go ahead and be finished and uh, the, the benefits will be felt. But most people, investors are essentially herd animals, so most people will wait till it's finished and then they say, oh, yeah, that, that's an influence. Maybe it'd be good to buy there. Well, the smart people would have bought, um, say, two years earlier and would be getting the most benefit. And, and that's um, one of the fundamental truths in investment. Most people don't get fantastic results because they're, they're herd animals. They follow the herd and by the time they buy, the boom's already well underway. The people who do best are the ones who, who buy ahead of the, the big upsurge. 
um, but they're relatively few. The people who have the wisdom and the foresight and the courage to um, actually run in the opposite direction to the pack. Um, so, you know, smart people will be buying right now in Perth, but most people will wait until they read that and the Perth market's rising before they even think of it. Uh, the, the rise is inevitable, um, but most people aren't sufficiently well-researched and su- sufficiently independent in their thinking to act upon that. Um, I also think people are going to be amazed and surprised about Adelaide when the word finally gets out. We've been trying to convince people that Adelaide's um, a looming hotspot for all sorts of reasons that are happening in its local economy. Um, people are very hard to convince about Adelaide. I'm, my next purchase um, will be there um, because I really believe in what's happening and it's going to be very exciting. But um, as I say, most people are pack animals. They'll follow the herd when they read that there's a boom happening. What do you think have been the key indicators for both Perth and Adelaide that's you know, been a great hotspot to, to look at? Well, Perth's been going sort of slowly, gradually backwards uh, through the period that Sydney and Melbourne have been booming Perth's kind of been um, in retreat because fundamentally because of its links with the resources sector and the end of the the previous resources investment boom. Um, So prices are down, so great opportunity to buy as long as you believe that it's not going to go down any further, and I don't think it will. In fact, the indicators now are that they're actually prices are rising. One of the problems is that people use media as their research medium, which is huge mistake. Um, one of the things media does is they generalise so they'll produce one figure saying that um, Perth prices are down 2% in the last 12 months. Well if you, you do it suburb by suburb as we do you know that there are um, pockets within Perth that are already rising strongly particularly the top end and that's often at the beginning of a cycle. Most cycles start with the top end uh, not always but mostly and um, we're actually seeing Strong price growth in Adelaide and Perth in the million-dollar suburbs, but not across the board. Um, so that's an indicator that something's happening. The reduction in vacancy rates is another indicator. Quite often, rents and vacancies are a precursor to price movements. That actually happened in Sydney. Um, prior to Sydney's getting on its growth path about 2013, there were a couple of years where rents rose a lot. But prices didn't, and that was an indicator for the smart people that it was a good time to buy in Sydney. Um, so we've seen vacancies drop in Perth to the point where they're now about 3% and falling. We're starting to see um, evidence of rental growth again, and we're seeing movement in the top end of the market. And we're also, in our um, quarterly research of demand figures, sales activity, we're seeing a big uplift in sales activity in Perth. So all of those things are telling us that Perth is is ready to roll um, and uh, it's not going to fall any further. Uh, The the underlying state economy has improved a lot. The resources sector is revitalising. Jobs are being created again. So pretty confident about that Perth being a growth market moving forward. But now's the time to be looking there. And um, the mentoring client I I mentioned earlier, he was frustrated because various attempts to purchase have been thwarted for various reasons. He's just now... I secured a property at a very good price in a good area in Perth and um, I think it's going to turn out to be a very good investment for him. As for Adelaide, it may not be the city that comes to mind when you think of innovative high-tech but it will soon be. I do believe that real estate markets arise out of the local economies 
and um, I'm excited about what's happening in the South Australian economy. Um, it's got a reputation for being a low growth state on population and income, but it's changing a lot. And in our daily collection of information, it just keeps coming through, you know, the, the Deloitte Access Economics, the BIS, Oxford Economics, those sorts of people, they do their, and the Comsec State of the States report, their, their quarterly reports um, are noting, for example, the, the rise in business confidence is higher in Adelaide than anywhere else in Australia and many of these organisations are predicting South Australia to lead on economic growth in the next few years and that's coming out of um, one of the things that I don't think people understand is that Adelaide is the high-tech innovation capital of Australia. We're constantly reading in our research that major businesses, many of them are global businesses, are moving their headquarters to Adelaide for that reason but it seems to be flying under the, the radar screen of Australian media and Australian investors, Technicolor, I'm sure everybody is familiar with Technicolor, the part they're playing movies. They're a, a business based in France, but they're, they're setting up their Australian headquarters right now in Adelaide, creating hundreds of jobs. Uh, and they're going there because they recognise this is where it's happening for high-tech innovation in Australia. Australia's new space agency has been set up in Adelaide. Uh, Elon Musk with his battery technology, he's set up his Australian operation in Adelaide. And there, there are dozens of, of examples like that and it's, it's, it's really building a momentum. You know, the world is increasingly about technological innovation and where is it happening in Australia? It's happening in Adelaide. And um, in addition to that, you've got the, the contracts for uh, building vessels for the Navy, $90 billion worth, and it's starting right now. I mean, that's going to be massive for a, a city the size of Adelaide. For any, the city of any size, for Sydney it would be massive, but for Adelaide it's more so. So all of that's happening. Um, Adelaide's also a strong resources state, and it's the national leader for alternative energy development, wind farms, solar farms, various hybrid renewable energy things. It's happening fundamentally in South Australia. So... Those are the reasons why I'm really excited about it and I want, um, you know, um, looking in Bendigo, as I mentioned, but um, the other place I'm looking for my next purchase is uh, certain parts of the Adelaide market. Ryder still writes for Money Magazine, compiling the top 50 property hotspots report each February. And part of that is we review how did our, our tips for last year go and... Uh, so that's part of the exercise each year when we write that feature. And um, when we looked at what we took last year, we actually did very well um, some of the locations that we we suggested um, because, you know, we, we look at the factors that we know drive real estate markets. Um, and um, right now there's plenty of pumping places in Australia that the media is overlooking because they, they tend to focus on the big cities. Um, Regional Australia is where it's happening at the moment. That's that's where most of the growth markets right now are. Regional Victoria is going ballistic. Regional Tasmania, parts of regional New South Wales, and increasingly regional Queensland starting to deliver growth markets like Mackay is leading the comeback in central Queensland. Um, but, um, you know, the, the research that we do actually identifies these places, but you're not going to find about, out about in the media because all they want to write about is the downturn in Sydney. So. While he doesn't have any specific resources or mentors, he uses a general philosophy of reading as much as he can, which has served him well over the years. There's been a lot of real estate books 
Britain over the years. Um, not all of them are great. Um, and also some of the books to be read um, are not specifically real estate books. Um, I'm just actually looking at my bookshelf in my office here. There's one um, I found great recently um, called The Answer, written by Ellen and Barbara Peace, other people who wrote the original book on body language as um, they invented that concept that people might be familiar with. Um, um, very good book on, on how to called The Answer on how to um, go ahead with your goals and objectives on life. There's another one I'm looking at called Winners and How They Succeed by Alistair Campbell, who was the speechwriter for Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister of, of Great Britain. Um, those kind of books. I, I think developing a reading habit, reading those kinds of books, um, you know, avidly, is a key to success in any sphere, but certainly in real estate, because you learn so much in any good book that you read. Um, so, yes, I've had mentors. It's, it's the authors of some of those books, and I've adopted some of those strategies um, to be more successful in business and in life generally. Similar to his mentors, the best advice he's received has been through things he's read as opposed to talking with people directly. You know, I mentioned Warren Buffett. Um, I quite often quote him in, in my reports on real estate because his philosophy is so relevant uh, to real estate, uh, fundamentally taking a long-term view, accumulation of good assets and keeping them. That's very much his philosophy. Um, but probably the number one philosophy from Warren Buffett is that you do the opposite to the herd. You buy when others are selling and you sell when others are buying. Um, and, and that's, I think, where real estate investors uh, get it wrong the most. As I mentioned earlier, they just follow the herd. And the readers are boom on, they pile in. Um, whereas the Warren Buffett philosophy is you're doing the opposite to what the herd's doing. Um, and I think that's fundamentally a very good good philosophy. So that's where I think you, you get the best advice by reading um, books by interesting people and successful people and understanding what they did or the people that are writing them. The, the book Winners by Alistair Campbell, he's interviewed people who are renowned in uh, business, in entertainment, in sport, all sorts of different, um, all sorts of different um, spheres of life, but they have a, um, a kind of um, commonality of philosophy that, that permeates, permeates all those different fields of endeavour that make them winners and hence the title of the book. So um, that, that's where I think you get the best advice on how to proceed. Terry, if you say met yourself 10 years ago, what do you think you would have said to him? I would have said to him to get, get busier with investment um, and to understand the importance of accumulation rather than, than trading, certainly those things. Um, Back your judgment. Um, I think I've um, probably a mistake I've made has been um, been very good at making other people wealthy. People have followed my advice, um, particularly on location, have done well. And sometimes I think I'm uh, too hesitant to follow my own advice. Although it's probably more too busy running a business and doing other things to to put the time in. Um, so if I went back ten years, that would be, I think, a change that I would make. Oh, I love it. Hindsight, we always learn something from it, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's never too late. Um, you know, no matter what, what stage of life you're at, you can make a beginning. But I think, you know, the best advice to people out there is to start as early as you can 
um, even in a very, very small way. Um, just get yourself on the path. Uh, you don't have to be in a hurry. You don't have to take big risks, but start as early as you can. And uh, just uh, so by the time you get to, you know, 40 and 50, you're already well down the path. Um, and you're not, uh, a lot of people are sort of suddenly wake up one day and saying, my God, I'm going to be retiring in 10 years. I better do something. Um, you know, it's, it's just so much better and easier if you if you got started when you're in your 20s, um, even if it means you've got to um, you know, make some sacrifices. Maybe you can't go out with your mates to the nightclubs as often as you'd like, um, but it's, it's worth making you know, a few compromises and sacrifices to get going. You'll benefit in the long run. Over the next five years, he plans to sit back and become less involved than he is now. But don't worry, there are no retirement plans in sight. I want to be um, the Dave Nat Attenborough of real estate re- research. I think he's, he's out there at the age of 91, still doing what he loves as enthusiastically as he was when he was in his 30s. And I intend to be the same, um, but um, I'd like to be able to have the option to, to be a little less involved um, because if I've got things up set up exactly the way I want them, um, my real estate portfolio humming along and um, allowing me to, um, to write more books and um, travel um, as often as I'd like to. That's awesome. Well, looking forward to hearing more about that as well. And last question, Terry, is how much do you think your success is due to your skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably 75 um, skill, hard work and um, 25% luck. Luck always plays a part but I really think that um, there's very few people who, who succeed the way they wish to succeed in life and that's not all measured in terms of monetary gains, all sorts of ways of measuring success but uh, I think... Luck is a relatively um, minor component of of any successful life. Um, I'm reading, as I've indicated, about um, success stories um, all the time and they all have elements of tragedy and hard work and reversals and believing they're never going to make it. But um, persistence and hard work is is the the common denominator of all people who've ever got to where they want to go. So... Luck's a component, but it's not a big one. Thank you to Tara Ryder, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, Text me your name and email address on 0499881040.